I think I may know something about you, and I bet you know something about me. I bet you like proof, don't you? You like having proof. Uh, someone may say, I love you, and what may you say? Prove it. Right? Don't we like proof? We don't like when we just hear people say things. We want people to prove it. When Kayla and I moved to New Braunfels, we wanted to buy a house. And so in the process of buying a house, we need a loan, and we go to the bank and we say, we can afford this. You know what they say? Prove it. We have a whole credit rating system in America where you get a number based on how you've proved that you can pay off your debt. We love proof. Our whole culture uh, is inundated with a need for proof, and it's a good thing, isn't it? You know, I know that we had existed in a time where we could take people at their words, but we could take people at their words because there was often followed up with that proof. Proof is important. Proof is a kind of currency that we can't do without in our world, even in our faith. Uh, proof is defined as evidence that establishes the truth of a statement. Evidence that establishes the truth of a statement. As we look in the, the Gospel of Matthew in our last sermon in the series Trials and Triumph, we must remember something about the Apostle Matthew. His goal as he wrote the letter or the Gospel of Matthew was to prove that Jesus was the Messiah, was the coming King of David, and was the Son of God. And so what we find as we jump into Matthew, go ahead if you haven't already, open up into Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 23, we have Matthew setting forth a summary passage to show us what is about to happen over the next few chapters, and he wants to make sure that we understand that he is proving through this summary statement that Jesus is who he says he is. That the things Jesus says is followed up and proven by what he does. Simply this, the miracles of Jesus were to authenticate and validate the message of Jesus. And this morning we're going to look at the text and we're going to recognize that the power of Jesus that was revealed through his miraculous acts... It is those things that we should look to, not in and of themselves, not as the main thing, but as sufficient proof for us to fully trust in the message of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus didn't just come and give us a whole bunch of words and give us a message that says, take my word for it and just, it'll all work out in the end. No, no. He came, he gave us a message, and he attested it by signs, wonders, and miracles. But we must understand clearly what his life was about. It was about his message and his life that brought us into right relationship with God. And the miracles were secondary to that. They were secondary to that to give us proof and validation and authentication of who he is and what he has said. It's important for us as we jump into the text that we look at the miracles and we classify them where they ought to be. It's not the primary, but it's secondary, but very important. But then we can see what the primary aspect of this whole passage is, and it was Jesus came and told us the way into the kingdom of God. But before we do, as we look at the text here, we should notice something. As we open our text, we should see that these verses are repeated somewhere else in Matthew. That Really what we're seeing here in the first couple of verses we see again in chapter 9, because I, like I said earlier, this is a summary passage. Matthew is, is setting forth a summary, and he said, this is what Jesus did. He went through Galilee, he was teaching and preaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing all of the sick. Okay, And guess what chapters 5 through 9 are? Jesus going around teaching people all these things and healing the sick. So what we have this morning is simply a summary of what's about to happen through chapters 5 and 9. And that section ends in chapter 9 in verses 35 and 38. As Pastor Evan read already, verses 23 through 5-2, look with me or at least listen to me as I read Matthew 9, 35 and 38. And tell me if this doesn't sound familiar. And Jesus went throughout, and this is Matthew 9, 35 and 38, 
And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Did that sound pretty familiar to you? Because this is uh, what you got call an inclusio, right? We, we began with something, he proves it, and then he ends with the same thing that he began with to show you that's what that whole section was about. Because when we get into Matthew chapter 9 in 10 years, uh, what we're going to be able to do is, is we're going to look, oh, we're at a new section. Something else is about to happen, which is what Matthew wants us to see, is that something else is going to happen. Right now we're, teaching, we're learning about the message and the, and the miracles of Jesus that proved who he is. And then when we get into chapter 9, listen to what he then says. Okay, I've gone and I've teached I've taught my message. We've healed a bunch of afflictions. Does he do it in other places? Of course he does, but Matthew is proving a point here. What happens after that in, in chapter 9? Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Isn't that, isn't that a caring statement of our Savior to the lost people of the world? Verse 37, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You know what you know, happens right after that? He sends out the disciples. They start doing evangelism. And so we move from this Jesus who is teaching about the kingdom and uh, doing the miracles and healing the people. And then he says, all right, disciples, now we're going to go out to all of the villages in Galilee, in the region, and now we're going to go start evangelizing. So that's important for you as you look at the flow of the gospel of Matthew, because we have a block of teaching we're going to go over over the next few months. And we, if you remember in the first sermon, when we did an overview of the book of Matthew, we called that discipleship, right? Here you can just see a lot of discipleship happening. Jesus is going to say a lot of things. He's going to prove a lot of the things that he said by what he does. And then the next section we entitle as evangelism, because then they're going to go out and they're going to go and reach people for Christ. But that's all to prove to you one statement, that this is a summary statement. What we're going to look at this morning is a summary of what Jesus did. So there isn't a lot of detail. It's just a lot of uh, broad points that make this is what Jesus did throughout this time period. And so as we do that, I want you to look at the text as we look at what Jesus' life was like during his early Galilean ministry. So look with me there in verse 23. It says, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues. And there's two words that you're going to notice here, teaching and and proclaiming. Uh, Teaching and preaching. We actually talk about these words because even in the epistles, we hear these words put up next to each other. They're two Greek words that are important, and you don't want to overemphasize nuances, but it's here uh, because there is a difference. Okay, Teaching is the Greek word didasko, and it entails some formal kind of instruction. And we know and can prove in context that Jesus was giving formal instruction because of where he was meeting these people. He was meeting them in their synagogues. And so we have Jesus giving technical instruction. And what I mean by technical is they're saying, hey, kind of like we do here, they're expositing the scriptures. Jesus spent a lot of time in synagogues expositing the scripture to Jews throughout his, his whole ministry. Even before where we are right now, Jesus spent time doing that. And he spends time doing that throughout his life and ministry teaching, giving formal instruction in their synagogues. Now, not to spend too much time on it, but to understand the necessity of the synagogue, you need to understand a little bit of the history, and I'm not going to give you much, but uh, they believe synagogues happened uh, after the, or during the Babylonian exile, okay? Because at the point when everyone was in Jerusalem, they all gathered at the Temple, okay, they all gathered at the temple. Although there wasn't a lot of instruction going on at the temple, that was the central place of worship. That's where life and community was done in the lives of Jews, okay? But when you have the Babylonian exile in 500 B.C., okay, what, what happens? They're dispersed. There is no central location uh, for worship. And so during that time, perhaps that's when they, the synagogue started popping up. These were places where the Jews could still gather, uh, and by the time of the first century, these are very important places. Okay, they weren't, they weren't Jerusalem, but they were really important. And they were important because to the regular Jew, that's where their whole life revolved around. That's where they learned. That's where they were educated. That's where their community gathered. They were taught the word of God. They lived their whole life there. Actually, as a matter of fact, you can see plenty of proof throughout Scripture that even the Jewish legal system was established and proliferated from the synagogue. So as a matter of fact, you may not know this, you may, uh, they could do everything legally with Jews 
all the way up to and not including execution. This is why when you read, uh, there's a couple of times you read in the Gospels, and they're getting close to killing Jesus, whether it's stoning him or, or even up to his execution. Uh, but then it says something like, Jesus walked through and left. Well, why? Because they weren't allowed to execute him. That was, to, that was a Roman's responsibility. As a matter of fact, when you get to the crucifixion, who do they appeal to to execute him? Rome. But everything up to that point, you could actually, in the synagogues, come to legal uh, agreements or legal foundations of laws and even punishments. It's a very important place. And so it's really important to note that Jesus goes to these places that are really important to the life of the Jews, and he teaches them. He teaches them about the word and teaches them about the kingdom. But what else does he do? Then he goes and he proclaims. That's, that's the word we get for preaching or caruso. We see this word all the time throughout the Gospels and in, uh, you see it in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's a very important word because it's the proclamation of a message, particularly the message of a king, the message of one in authority. And so Jesus was giving technical teaching. He was expositing the word, but he was also bringing it. You know what I'm saying? He was preaching the message. He was saying, look, the kingdom of God is at hand. I am here. The kingdom is coming, and I want you to be a part of it. That's not super technical, is it? That's just a message that you need to respond to. That's what Jesus did. He gave, he gave hey, I'm going to exposit the scripture, but I'm also going to call you to a response. I'm going to caruso. I'm going to proclaim to you something very, very important. What is the proclamation? It's a call to action. Because he said, listen, I'm, I'm proclaiming about the gospel of the kingdom. This is good news. You remember John the Baptist, my cousin, he was telling people you need to repent because it's coming. That's some bad news, isn't it? That is a little bit of bad news, isn't it? Repent for God's coming. Well, wow, okay, now what? Well, just wait. My cousin's going to tell you the rest of that. Jesus shows up and says, listen, come to me. I'm going to give you the good news. He's proclaiming the good news. Not just the news, but the good news. That you can be a part of the kingdom. You can be a part of what God is establishing here. If you will turn from your sin and you will follow me, you get to be a part of this. And what does Jesus do? You're going to see how he shows and proves over and over again without a doubt, without any reasonable doubt. Any reasonable person is going to look at this and say, whoa, the kingdom is here. And it's Jesus. He is inaugurating this kingdom. So we have this. We have Jesus proclaiming the news of the kingdom, and he's telling us how we can be a part of it. And his entire purpose on earth, I want you to understand this clearly, because we need to understand this, and if you're Christians in here, you may be familiar with it, but I want to make sure that it's etched in your brain. Jesus' entire purpose on earth was to make a way for people to be a part of the coming kingdom, right? Can we all agree on that? That was his main purpose. He did a lot of other things, a lot of other important things you might even say, but his primary purpose was to proclaim the coming of the kingdom and tell us how we could be a part of it. And that was his message. This message is central to the Christian faith. Christ came, came to save sinners like you and me and bring us into his Father's kingdom. That's the message of the gospel. And he made that message central. I mean, it was, it was everything that he was about. I've come to do the will of my Father. I will not lose any that the Father has given me because the Father has a kingdom. He's bringing it, and he wants you to be a part of it. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not lose anyone that the Father has given me because this is about the kingdom. This is about the message of how people, sinful people, can be brought into the perfect, glorious kingdom of God. I actually want you to write it down that way. Point number one in your notes. You need to make Jesus' message the main thing. Make Jesus' message the main thing. I'm talking about in your faith. I'm talking about when it comes to reading Scripture. When you read the Gospels, always read it in light of what is Jesus' message? How is he trying to prove his message through this? How are the Gospel writers proving Jesus' authoritative message in this thing that he's saying? We're going to do it this morning when we look at Jesus' miracles particularly. But every time you read the Gospels, you need to be asking yourself, what is this saying about the message of Jesus Christ? What is this saying about the coming kingdom of God? What is this saying about how people can come into the presence of a holy God? Those are the questions you should ask. Because everything in the Gospels are going to point to that. John 4, 39 through 42, Jesus uh, has engaged with a Samaritan woman. I, I don't want you to flip there, but at least listen to the end of it. This is after... After he's uh, dialogued with her, she's going back into the town, and this is what it says in verse 39. It says, many uh, Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Love that. 
He told me all that I ever did. Isn't that a sign and a wonder? So that's a sign. That's a miracle, right? He told me everything he ever did. I told him that I wasn't married, and he said, yeah, you're not married. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now isn't your husband. That's, that's bold, but that's also true. And how would he have known that if he wasn't the son of God? And here we go. What happens? Then, then uh, the Samaritans came in verse 40. They came to him, and they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word, his message. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Do you see what happened? Jesus did a sign and a wonder, got people's attention, people invited Jesus, and what did he do? Proclaimed to them the word, because they said, we now know this is indeed the worker of miracles in the region. This is the guy that I go to if there's a problem. That's not what they said, was it? They said, we now know that this is the savior of the world. It's like, he, I mean, at, at most, he just prophesied over the woman's wives or husbands, right? I mean, is, that, is that proof of savior of the world in and of itself? Eh, it leaves some to be lacking, right? But we have to understand, what was Jesus' main purpose? I'm going to show you who I am by what I'm doing, and then I'm going to tell you who I am by the message that I proclaim. And you will believe me because I've authenticated that through what I have done in your life. And here, they come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Savior of the world, not because of just what they had saw, but the message that was proclaimed, heard, and responded to. It's a point. It's a point of Jesus' ministry. So now we get into the application, and that's where it starts, you know, poking you and I, making us feel uncomfortable. It makes me feel uncomfortable. Because you know what we do in churches oftentimes? We often make churches real attractional, don't we? We make it more about what we can see. We make it about how we can enjoy it. And we, really, we make it about us, don't we? Uh, we have churches that spend a lot of time getting crowds together, spending a lot of time and money on productions. Is that necessarily a bad thing? No. We like to get people's attention. We want to get people to sit in this room. We got a lot of empty chairs over there. Got a lot of empty chairs over here. Got a lot. We want to fill those chairs up, don't we? But not so I can entertain people and not so you can entertain people. So that we can proclaim to people the message of Jesus Christ. Now the problem is when you have churches that are attracting people just for attractional purposes, you have people who are truncating and mitigating the message of Jesus Christ where either it is barely heard or it is made such a small part of the service that people, even keen people, who understand the Bible and the message of the gospel can't even comprehend or understand the gospel being taught because it was so, such a small part of the service. We can't be that. We've got to make sure that, that we're a church that whatever we do finds its centrality on the message being preached and the gospel being proclaimed. I'm willing to do a lot of things. I'm willing to do most things once if they're biblical. But not because I want to attract people, because I want to proclaim the gospel. Because I want people to respond. I don't want people to just respond out of what they see, but what they hear. And what they can know. That Jesus is the Savior of the world. But you know, it's not just about people coming in, isn't it? It's about you and me. A lot of times we make Christianity, we make church, about a lot of other things other than the message of Jesus Christ, don't we? Worship style. We don't really have that issue here. Praise the Lord. Okay, But isn't that something we always think about? I wish the worship was different. I wish the music was different. I wish it was louder. I wish it was quieter. Programming. And I wish you had this ministry. I wish you guys did this thing. Why don't we do more of this? Why don't we do less of that? What else do we do? What about, what about a group for my stage of life? That's a big one, isn't it? It's just like, I, I like this group, but like, what about people my age? It's like, what about, what about the saints? What about just all of them? Right? Not just the ones who look like me and smell like me and act like me. What about just all the ones I'm going to be with for eternity? It's like, I don't just want to get to know the 30 that I'm going to spend eternity with. I want to know the, all of the saints in the church that I'm going to be spending eternity with. This isn't about an age stage ministry. This is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you see... I'm not saying that an age stage ministry, a programming or worship, not they're, not they're not saying they're not important. I'm not saying they're not great things, but they're not the main thing. 
The main thing is that the gospel is being preached. That the message is clearly being articulated and spoken to a world where they too can say it's no longer because of the attractional methods of the church. It's no longer because of the the perfect marketing strategy of the church that I believe. I believe because I've heard the word of truth and I've heard the gospel and I indeed know that Jesus is the savior of the world. Just like the Samaritans. We got to make Jesus' message the main thing. That Jesus has come for sinners that God has sent his only son, that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. That's the message. That's the main thing. You know, even when it came to Jesus' life, you know, proclaiming a message is one thing, isn't it? Me telling you something, that's one thing. But me proving it, that's a whole other thing, isn't it? I can prove to you what I'm saying. That's a whole other ballgame. That's where change happens, isn't it? When we can look and we can say it's not only because of what he said, it's because of what he did. He proved it. He, he is who he says he is because I've seen it, I've heard it, and I believe it because he's proved it. So watch how Jesus proves the rest of, in the rest of verse 23, that he is the son of God, that he is the savior of the world. Look at 23, the other half. As he's gone throughout all Galilee, he's teaching and preaching, but he's also healing every disease and every affliction among the people. I love that part. Every disease and every affliction. It wasn't some, most, a very little, a lot. It was every disease and every affliction among the people. He healed everybody that was brought to him. You know what's interesting about this versus some other instances in the Gospels? In other instances of the Gospels, there were people being brought to him, and the disciples said, hey, come on, there's people out here, we got to go, we got to go. Look, all these people need healing. And Jesus says, I must go to other cities also, so I can proclaim the message. So in that instance, he's actually leaving people who are still sick and people who still need healing. But in this instance, what do we see? Every disease and every affliction among the people is healed and taken care of. Verse 24, so his fame spread throughout all of Syria... And they brought to him all the sick, all of them, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. If you're going to say that the kingdom of heaven has come, right? if you're going to say that you're the way into the eternal kingdom, you're going to preach that gospel message, you better be able to follow it up. And he does. Every single person who is sick and afflicted and diseased, Jesus heals them. You know why? Because he says the kingdom of God is going to be a place where disease doesn't come, sickness doesn't come, death doesn't come. It's all going to be perfect, and it's my Father's, and I'm bringing you into it. There is no better way to prove that what you say is true than every time somebody interacts with you as you're preaching that gospel message, that they don't leave unless they're changed. That's good proof of the kingdom is here, isn't it? That's proof that the kingdom that is going to come is going to fix all the things that are wrong. Remember, it wasn't the main thing, right? The main thing wasn't the miracles. But the miracles proved that the kingdom that he's talking about is true. The kingdom that he's talking about is real. And we get to be a part of it. Gives you and I hope, doesn't it? Anybody got some issues in their body today? All right? I'm not going to call you up here. I'm not going to lay my hands on you. I'm just telling you. That's the reality that we live in, isn't it? Right? You and me, we hurt every day. The good news for us isn't that we may receive healing today or tomorrow. The, the, the good news for us is that we're going to have eternal healing. There's going to come a time in our life where body, body's going to be glorified. Anybody want a glorified body in here? Raise your hand if you want a glorified body. If you don't, you can stay here, I guess. <laughs> All right. We're going to have glorified bodies. It's going to be a great. And Jesus has proven that. He's like, you want to prove that the kingdom is real? Come here. I want you to know more important than your temporary healing. Because it's temporary. You, mean, you know that, right? Those people aren't walking around today. But they died. And so if the best that Jesus can give me is another 40 years, that's not the kingdom that I want to be a part of. The miracles had to be more than that. And they were. They were an authentication of what Jesus was promising for all of those who would follow him. Hmm, church, come on. Verse 24. So his fame spread throughout, the Syria, uh, throughout Syria. He brought on the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Let's, uh, let's zoom in and look at the kinds of things that Jesus was healing. I think that's important here. I think Matthew puts them in here particularly for a really, really, really good reason. Let's look at them one by one. 
Uh, of course, we have, this, we have sicknesses and pains. Those are general things. But then he kind of zooms in and talks about more particular things. There are those who are oppressed by demons. Isn't that what it says there in verse 24? And there are many symptoms in Scripture attributed to demon oppression and demon possession. But simply here, we see people who are under the influence of demonic powers. Isn't that a reason why we need the kingdom of God to come? Because we have demonic powers influencing our lives and tearing our lives apart. Remember, Scripture says that, that our battle, it's not with flesh and blood, is it? It's with spiritual forces. It's principalities of darkness. The realities that we have is that we're fighting a demonic reality that we have on earth. And we're waiting for the kingdom of God to come to eradicate it completely. I mean, even the video that you guys saw right before service, or right before the message, what was it about? The powers of, of Satan, the demonic powers who, who tempted Adam and Eve and enticed them by their own desires. They forsake God and follow sin. They follow Satan. Something very clear in Scripture, very clear in our culture, that we have so many people influenced by demonic powers. I can go on, but I'll stop. Seizures. This is an important word because we've done a lot of, uh, if you have the ESV particularly, uh, we've done a lot of finagling to make that just mean seizures. But it's important in the Greek that you understand the root word for seizures, for this Greek word, is selene. Okay, if you know anything about Greek or any kind of language, uh, selene is the word for moon. Okay, moon. And actually this Greek word, uh, compound Greek word, means moon struck. Okay, so when Matthew's using this word seizures, uh, root word selene, he is talking about people who are under the control of natural forces like the moon. Right? You may have heard the word lunatic. Right? You call somebody a lunatic, and you just may say it because you're trying to figure out something to call some crazy person. But lunatic means that they're under the influence of luna, moon. Okay? And it's not just something that was in ancient times. There's a lot of research. Just go Google it. Are people in, impacted or influenced by the moon? I'm not even, I don't even want to talk about it. Just go look at it. There's, even, there's, a, there's a lot of studies and research, even in the day's time, that people's lives... The cycles of all the human body is very influenced by the moon. Okay, why is that a problem? We can't even we're even under control of things that we can't help. Like it's the moon. I can't touch that. Very few people have ever been to the moon. Right? I'm under control of things that I cannot conquer. I cannot overpower. And I can't even get to it. It's very clear there. And these forces, these natural forces like the moon, were causing people to go into convulsions and seizures. Basically, looking at it and saying, "There's no hope for you. You just got to let it happen." And hopefully it stops at some point. That's pretty hopeless, isn't it? It's a pretty hopeless state for people to be in. So he's going and he's healing people with demonic powers, people under the influence of Satan and his demons, people that have no power over these people. And Jesus grabs them and he says, this is what the kingdom is like. No more of that. He takes the people convulsing in seizures, taking these people who have no control over their bodies because of natural forces around them. And he says, come here, this is what the kingdom's about. I have no more of that. Then he does another one. Paralytics. Right? Those who are lame, those who are crippled, those who are controlled by permanent physical impairments. Those to me, they have my heart in scripture. They really do. Like I, when I read those, it's like, yes, the, the, demon, the demon possessed people, yeah, I mean, that's, that's rough, you know. Uh, the paralytics, yeah, definitely. Moonstruck people, lunatics, I get it. But it's like these people, like every, every moment they look, they look at their body and they say, this is never going to be fixed. I mean, every single time they wake up, they realize they can't do anything for themselves. I mean, you look throughout all scripture. They had, to, they had to drag them on their mats. They had to pick them up, put them through the roof. They had to go take them into the pool. They had to get them out. They couldn't do anything. They were beggars. Every single day of their life, they were shown their identity as a paralytic. And Jesus says, not in the kingdom. Not in the kingdom. In the kingdom, this doesn't happen. And he says, follow me into the kingdom, and our lives will never be like this. Your life will never be like this. I'm going to prove that the message of the kingdom is that if you would turn from your sins, you would trust in me, you're going to come into my Father's kingdom, and I'm going to go, I'm going to prepare a place for you so that you would be there too. It's not going to be like this anymore. Jesus preached a message that was... That God's kingdom is going to bring every power in heaven and on earth under the subjection of Jesus. Right? You've read Revelation. The kingdom of the earth, of the world, has now became the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. 
That's the plan. We see everything Jesus was doing to bring every power that was in control of the people's lives on heaven and on earth, and he said, I'm going to put them under my subjection. He says, you have demonic issues, there's things going on, Satan's controlling your life, demons are controlling your life, not in my kingdom. Jesus proves it by taking every single thing that was taking them under control and putting them under his control and releasing him from the power. Come on, church. That's the power of the kingdom of God. That's why we take it serious. That's why we take the miracles of Jesus serious. And I don't want to be Simon the magician. I don't, want, I don't want to be a peddler of God's word. I don't just want to say, oh, I wish I could do all those miracles. I, I, just, I wish I could be a part of the kingdom that he's proving. That's, that's what I want to be. I want to, make, I want to make the message the main thing. And I want to make the miracles of Jesus about his message. And that's point number two. Write it down that way. We need to make Jesus' miracles about his message. We need to make Jesus' miracles about his message. Remember, Jesus' miracles were primarily to authenticate his message. They were proof that what he says is true. Now, I don't want to be one of those people that, that, that tells you, well, the miracles didn't do anything else. No, they did a lot of great things. They gave people hope. Right? They give you hope, don't they? When you realize what you're going through, Jesus preached the message, and you say, yeah, but i got to wait 70 years for that. i got to wait a millennium after that. i got to wait for eternity. It's like, no, the hope for you is that Jesus said, if you turn from your sin, place your trust in him, the kingdom is yours. Entirely the kingdom is yours. It's not all here yet, but it's a down payment. Isn't that what, isn't that what scripture calls it? You got the Holy Spirit as a down payment? You have it. The kingdom is yours. That's good news. That's why we make it about the message. These miracles show the power of the coming kingdom. When the consummate kingdom, when it arrives, our lives are going to be transformed just like those Jesus transformed. Think about that. When the kingdom comes, our lives are going to be transformed just like those people's lives are transformed. You see what Jesus was doing? I'm going to transform your life right now in the immediate as proof of the actual transformation that's going to happen across all of creation. I'm going to show it in a, in a microcosm. But in the macrocosm, this is going to happen to everybody, everybody who's part of the kingdom. We're going to have, be resurrected. We're going to have glorified bodies. You have a chipped tooth, it's going to be fixed. Right? You're bald, that'll be fixed too. Amen? Yeah. <laughs> Revelation 21, 4 through 5, it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, we have God on the throne, behold, I am making all things new. Come on, that's the promise of the kingdom. And I don't, I don't want you making Jesus' miracles about something that you can grasp and go take somewhere. Not that you're doing that, but we have a world that does that, don't we? Trying to make Jesus' miracles about something they can have right here in the here and now. And they make it about the miracles. And Jesus is making it about the message that's going to get us to the consummation. The revealing. The totality of the kingdom to come. That's what I'm looking for. I hope that's what you're looking for. John, in his gospel, even tells us what the miracles of Jesus were meant to do. In John 20, verses 30 through 31... This is what John says. Now John, or now Jesus, excuse me, did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. A lot of things Jesus did, not written in the book. But these that were written were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You want to know the purpose of the miracles? You want to know the purpose of the signs and wonders of Jesus Christ? They were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that you may have life eternal in his name. That's the reason for the miracles. That's the reason for the signs and the wonders, that we may believe in the message of Jesus Christ. And I do, I want to look forward to the day, church, when the miracles that we see 
through Jesus or just the normative state of believers, healed and happy. Anybody else want to be there? Healed and happy. Because when I'm in the kingdom and you're in the kingdom, we're going to be healed and happy. I'm just concerned with people who are trying to make healed and happy the normal state of this life. When over and over again, Scripture makes it clear that it's not about this life. When Scripture makes it really clear that we're going to go through trials and we're going to go through tribulations and we're going to, we're going to go through pains. We're going to go through uh, these issues in our lives constantly. And the hope is always looking forward to the time when God's going to bring his kingdom. It's going to come and he's going to bring us to himself glorified. So what I want you to do, I want you to be, I want you to be cynical, but I want you to be skeptical of signs and wonders in our world today. Particularly, particularly of those who claim to do signs yet do not focus on the biblical message of the good news of Jesus Christ. Right? I'm not even going to say, hey, don't believe in miracles. Don't believe, don't believe, and when I say don't believe in miracles, I'm not saying don't believe that God can't do miracles. I believe God can heal. I believe God saves. I believe God renews. I believe God does all of those things. Okay, I'm telling you, you should be very skeptical of individuals who claim to be endowed with the power of God to produce those things and be skeptical of all of them, particularly those who make that their ministry. I got a healing ministry. You have no ministry if it's not the ministry of the gospel. There is no ministry endowed by God that isn't the ministry of the gospel. Be skeptical of those people. Don't be cynical. You got a gospel to preach. Right? You have a God to delight in. You have a, a church to serve. Don't be cynical, but be skeptical. Let's look at verse 25. So look at how Jesus used uh, his methods, his miracles, and his message. And look what happens. Look at verse 25. It said, In great crowds they followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis. Decapolis, that means ten cities. Opolis, right? Town, city. Uh, Deca, ten. So there was the region of the Decapolis that had ten cities. There were a lot of cities in Galilee. A lot of a lot of people in Galilee. It's a very popular region. And you have these people coming from Galilee, the capitalists, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. I love this. People are just coming from everywhere. I love this because Matthew makes it subtle. He makes subtle uh, proofs that Jesus' message isn't just for Jerusalem. Right? Jesus wasn't even born in Jerusalem. He was born somewhere that people didn't care about. Right? He lived in a city that no one cared about. His, the beginning of his ministry happened in a place of Gentiles. And you know where he commissions the disciples? In the place of the Gentiles. And so we have it again here that Jesus was about the nations. Now, I know the beginning of Jesus' ministry, I know throughout most of his ministry, he said, go nowhere among the Gentiles. Because in his ministry, he had to make it about the people of God, that is the Jews at the time, because those are the people that he was sent to. And when they had forsaken him, when they had rejected him, they went to the world. But it was always the plan, not the reaction, to include the nations. It wasn't, now the Jews don't want me, so I'm going to go everywhere else. It was always, there's going to come a time where many of the Jews, as, as a nation, are going to come back to God. This wasn't simply about Jews not going to follow Jesus when it comes to the eschatological realities of the world, it's simply this, that it was always God's plan to include the nations. It was always God's plan to go and make disciples of all nations, not just one, all of them. He went to these, this area, all these people from all over were following him, and seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he, what does that say? Taught them. Again, what is it about? It's about the message. It's about proclaiming the truth of the coming of the kingdom. And so when he got everyone together, his fame spread. People were coming through Galilee and the capitalists and Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. And he saw the crowds, and he's like, this is the point where everyone, whether you're in a business, whether you're in marketing... 
whether you're an influencer, you get all the crowds together and you do one thing very important. In your world, you do the one thing that is your job. You do the thing that is the mission in which you have given your life to. And you get all of them together. And Jesus got all of them together and he sat down, which is something that rabbis did to formally teach. So it's formal that I stand up, and ironically in our culture, if we sit down, it's informal. When rabbis stood up, it was informal. When they sat down, it was formal. And so he sat down formally to do what he came to do, teach people about the coming of the kingdom. Now, I don't want you to just make it about words. I don't want you to just say, well, he just, all Jesus came to do was teach. No, no, no. He came to make a way for sinners to get saved. And the only way for people to know that is for him to teach them how. And so you remember, it's about the work of Jesus, but we can't understand the response to the work of Jesus if we don't have the proclamation of the message of Jesus. And he teaches them about the kingdom. He gathered the masses, not primarily to show them miracles, not primarily, that wasn't the primary purpose, was it? Not primarily to fill their bellies, he fed the 5,000, he fed the 4,000. It wasn't primarily to fill their bellies, it was to show them the truth. It was to preach to them the gospel of the kingdom. And that message is our focus, isn't it? We commit to every word of Christ. We commit to every word in scripture to inform us of the truth of God's kingdom. It's our goal. We want to show the world the truth. We want to announce to the world the coming of the kingdom. It's his goal. It's our goal. And we unapologetically teach with authority everything that Jesus said. We want to trust every word in Scripture. I don't want to question any of the words in Scripture. I want to trust them because they're the words to eternal life. Even when Jesus gave a really difficult teaching, you remember that he told uh, many of his disciples, not just the 12 members, but he had a lot of disciples, and he told them, he said, if you want to follow me, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. You remember that part? And there's a lot of people who said, I'm good. And they left. And Jesus says, you guys want to leave too? Talking to the 12. That's what uh, Peter says. Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words to eternal life. And we have believed and had come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I love that. That's, called, that's a disciple. Like he's, Peter says, eat, eat your flesh, drink your blood. I'll take the forearm. You know? He says, whatever you say, that's what I'm doing. Right? I mean, you had to know that Peter had no idea that this was about the Lord's Supper, that this is about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins, and that we are partakers in that. But as a follower, and there's a lot of things, isn't it? There's a lot of things the Bible says that you're like, yep, all right. And sometimes you've got to read the Bible, and you're going to find things you don't like, find things you're not comfortable with, find things maybe right now you don't understand, and you say, I'll take the forearm. Because we're disciples and we trust that this word is the word of God. And it gives us the understanding to eternal life. So we trust it. We unapologetically preach it. But you know, in that time, particularly in the first century, the crowds and the disciples, they had the benefit of having Jesus in the flesh, didn't they? They had the benefit of having Jesus teaching them. I mean, even as we see right now, he goes up into a mountain and they sit down, thousands of people are around him. And they get the benefit of God in the flesh sitting down and teaching them about the kingdom. We have a lot of blessings, don't we, in our life. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the word of God fully articulated to us, don't we? Like we have all of scripture. We have it right here in front of us like no people in history ever had. But there is something we don't have. And it's Jesus in his flesh proclaiming to us the gospel of the kingdom, proclaiming us teaching. But we do have his word, and we do have people that God has called to proclaim the word publicly. They're called pastors, teachers. They're called shepherds. And it's our job in our church to lift up more trusted biblical teachers. It's our job to be trusted biblical teachers our world needs more trusted biblical teachers, people who are going to say, this is what Jesus' word says, and I'm not going to apologize for it. I just want us to learn how to live it and trust it. And we need more people who will do that. But we need even more people who will do this, and it's point number three. We need more people who will sit under trusted biblical teaching. We need more people who will sit under trusted biblical teaching. 
You know, it wasn't just about when Jesus was alive where people flocked around solid biblical truth. You would think maybe when Jesus died and he ascended to the right hand of the Father, people would say, well, that's it. He was the only guy. That was it. That guy's gone. What do we do now? I'll tell you what we do now. Acts 2.42. Acts 2.42 says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. You know what changed? Nothing. Nothing. They still committed to the teaching of God's word, the fellowship of the saints, communion, and prayers. Same things they were doing when they were following Jesus, they still did when Jesus was gone. And it's the same thing that you and I are called to do right now. It's to sit under trusted biblical teaching. We devote ourselves to the teaching of God's word, to the fellowship, to communion, and to the prayers. It hasn't changed since the first century. As a matter of fact, it's never changed in redemptive history, that we do one thing, we commit to God's word and we commit to one another, we commit to the fellowship we have, the remembrance of what God has done, and us seeking God together in prayer. We're doing that tonight, aren't we? I'd like to see this room filled with people who will seek God with one another in prayer. But even before that, when it comes to sitting under trusted biblical teaching, what does that mean? And I know I may be preaching to the choir, but you go out and you preach to people who aren't part of the choir, don't you? You need to make sure that you choose your church based on the quality of biblical teaching. Right? Choose your home church based on the quality of biblical teaching. There are a lot of other things that you could choose a church on. Right? Architecture, and you ain't finding it here. Right? There ain't no art. The, the architecture here is making it. Right? It's, it's, it stands. All right? But you can, you can pick a lot of things to base why you choose a church. And I'm just telling you, biblically, you pick your home church based on the quality of the teaching of God's word. And you commit to sitting under the teaching. Right, it's one thing to say, yeah, I like to go to that church because they just preach the word. That's great. But do you sit under the word? Do you commit to sitting under the word? Just like Christians have for millennia. That's all faithful believers must do. And on top of that, talking about preaching to people who aren't part of the choir, do you invite others? Now look at this room, and God has grown this church so much over the past year and a half but we got room. We got room for people who need to know that Jesus is the Savior of the world. We got room for people who need to be disciples, and we have room for people who want to make disciples. And so when it comes to sitting under trusted biblical teaching, when you're out in the community, do you look around and say, I wonder if they have biblical teaching? I wonder if they have good, solid biblical teaching? I wonder if they can trust the teaching that they hear week in and week out because what we want to do is we want to lead people to sit under trusted biblical teaching. And if they don't have a place, we can bring them here. I'm not saying I'm perfect. I'm not saying I'm ever going to get anything wrong. Because I'm sure I do every day. But when it comes to God's word, we want to do everything we can to be trusted biblical teachers and be a trusted biblical church. You know, in the U.S. courts, the only way to get a conviction is to be able to prove with, without a reasonable doubt that the person is guilty. And then after that, the court takes over, sentencing happens. Isn't that how it goes? Right? Isn't that great? Right? The burden of proof is on the complainant, the plaintiff. Right? At the end of the day, you have to prove without reasonable doubt that the person is guilty of what you're accusing them of. That's a great, that's a great country to live in, isn't it? When it comes to proving, we got to prove without a reasonable doubt that the person is guilty of what they're saying or what you're complaining about. And I wonder what would happen if we lived in a world now that would use those same standards with Jesus. I mean, think about it. Can you prove, can I prove without a reasonable doubt that Jesus is the Son of God? Yes. Unapologetically, clearly, I can prove without a reasonable doubt that Jesus is the Son of God. Matthew did it. It's right here. He went out and healed everybody and proclaimed the message of the kingdom. Without, you have no reasonable doubt to suggest that he is not who he said he was. Now, there's a lot of doubt, but it's not reasonable. There's a lot of people who doubt the existence of God, but it's not reasonable because creation itself testifies to the power and existence of God. There is no reasonable doubt that Jesus is not who he says he is. And if that's the case, church, 
If that's the case, it's time for you and me to follow through with trusting in Jesus as our Lord, which is what we do at salvation, isn't it? But it didn't stop there. We follow him. Right? If he is who he says he is, if he says the kingdom has come, follow me, we're going to go make disciples. If he is, beyond a reasonable doubt, the son of God, then what are we doing? We better be making disciples. We better be inviting people to come hear the gospel. Or we better be raising our kids to know the Lord. I'm guilty of it just as much as you are. We need to look at our spouses and we need to say, I'm sorry for being a terrible disciple. I want to follow Jesus. I want to run the race. Because he is who he says he is and he proved it. Let us be a church that lives in a way that, that when people look at us, they say, not only do they believe that Jesus is Lord, but they have proved it to me through the message that they proclaim and the lives that they live. Let's pray. God, my prayer this morning isn't that this is just another sermon that we come and listen to, but it is the words of life. God, we can go to a lot of places and hear a lot of messages. God, we, we leave these doors and we are inundated with every message that exists under earth. But we have one message that leads to life, and it's the gospel of the kingdom. God, I pray that for people in here that, that have never responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that he has come to be our substitute, that what we deserve is eternal punishment. God, it really is just your justice. God, we've broken your commandments. We've lived lives that are sinful and deplorable. We are, since conception, separated from the holiness that is you. And Christ has come to live that perfect life and be our substitute. He would clothe us in righteousness and he would impute upon us his righteousness that he would receive as he did on the cross, our sin and our shame, and nailing it to the cross made a way for us to be with you in your kingdom. God, I pray that we don't let a day go by and miss out on the grace and the mercy that is your gospel, that is your life, that you would save whoever would turn from their sin and believe in you, that they would receive the kingdom that has been promised. And I pray that even in this room, God, that people would get saved and that those who are, God, you would kindle in their heart, that your spirit, God, would uh, give them a zeal for the realities of the coming kingdom, that it would both help us look and have the right perspective here, that this ain't it, that this is a wonderful stewardship, but that's what it is. It's a stewardship. It's a responsibility. We should enjoy things in our life, but it, everything in our life should be pointing us to the realities of the kingdom to come. God, help us schedule our lives around that. God, help us not just fit it in where it's convenient, but let, let our life be scheduled with kingdom matters. Even, God, as we continue in worship now, God, let us sing to you. God, if you are worthy, let our voices sing. Let our lives reflect the realities of your kingdom and of our changed lives in Christ. And we pray it all in Christ's name. And the church said, amen. <laughs>